This episode is going to talk about school violence, including school shootings and suicide. If you're sensitive to this topic or there are children listening, please be advised. Education is caught between the 18th century notion of the three R's and the 21st century explosion of technology, politics, and the need to prepare our kids for the ever-evolving global economy. We know parents and educators all want the same outcome for kids, happy, healthy, and independent young people, but how do we get there and what are the obstacles and pitfalls we face along the way? Join us as we ask the question, what's What's best best for kids? The topic of school safety has become synonymous with the epidemic of school shootings. As we start a new school year, parents, teachers, and especially students are bracing for what sadly feels inevitable. The next tragedy at a school that will dominate the news cycle for a few days before fading in our memory until the next one. We all want to put an end to school violence, but there is no easy solution to this incredibly complex problem. Today's episode does not purport to offer a checklist of solutions. Rather, as always with this podcast, our goal today is to ask questions and create a conversation so that we can all work together to create lasting change for our schools and community. Hi, I'm Rob Copo. I'm Don Collins. Welcome back to the podcast. Nice to have you all out there again listening. We appreciate you being here. Today, I'm uh, excited to welcome my uh, admin team back to the podcast as a group. We've had you all in uh, on here individually. So go ahead and introduce yourselves uh, really quickly and uh, let everybody know who you are and what you do. I'm Robbie Shockney, assistant principal here at Torrey Pines. My main specialty is doing the master schedule and coordinating all students and teachers on campus. And I'm Rebecca Gallo. I get to oversee our athletics and our amazing students who um, participate in those sports, um, as well as support all of our students um, here on campus. And I'm Tracy Olander. I'm another assistant principal here at Torrey Pines High School. I oversee ASB and all of the clubs on campus. I'm also in charge of safety, school safety for our campus. So I run the school safety committee. And if you're a frequent listener, you might remember them, uh, in particular, uh, Rebecca, who was on the very first episode of the podcast and helped sort of inspire it. Uh, That episode was called What's Best for Kids. And Tracy and I did a great episode on data called In uh, In My Day. And then Robbie and I uh, tried to address school safety, this complex issue, in an episode called um, uh, Out of an Abundance of Caution which was a reference to, yes, all of our uh, communications that go out. And just yesterday, we had a whole lecture on uh, on communication. It was nice to know that we're doing it the right way. When the attorneys were telling us what you should do, we're like, yep, done it, done it, done it. Very reaffirming. Yeah, so, you know, uh, school safety has been a hot topic for a very, very long time, uh, really since Columbine. And then the pandemic interrupted it. And while students were off campus, In the least shocking news of the day, we didn't have mass shootings on campus. Uh, Now that we've had two years of, let's call it normal, uh, we're back to campus and sadly, this incredibly harsh reality is back. And this time last year we had Uvalde and our staff was very focused on that, uh, coming back to campus. And um, so this year we decided to go to a conference. We went to a national safety conference, the whole team went out there and to try to just get our brains wrapped around this topic because we are tasked with keeping 2,600 students and about 150 staff members safe every day. So um, I just want to kind of lean in just with our initial responses, reactions, you know, uh, uh, based on our episode last year, Robbie, like what, do you, what was your sort of initial takeaway from this, this conference that we just went to? Uh, the experience of it overall was just thought-provoking, I believe, is what I want to put it as. I, I think about what we do day-to-day, our actions, how we would react in a given scenario. Um, the perspective that I took away, though, was kind of shocking, Yeah. right? Um, I think we may have all shared that perspective of what does what do other people across the nation, even internationally mentioned at one point, see school safety as? And it was agreed that it was kind of tactical, that it was strictly shooting about active shooters um nothing else really came into that conversation and to me that was a bit shocking i thought there was more that could be had in the conversation from the the conference and for me i i feel like the the piece that was missing was that lens from the school's perspective obviously having that 
that understanding of what to do in case of a significant crisis or emergency like that. But the school perspective and lens is so much bigger than that one lens. Um, and having other voices and other school perspective would have been helpful. Uh, but that led us to really dive into what we do every day and then the different things that happen at school on, on, on any given moment. Yeah, and Tracy, you've, I mean, you're in charge of the safety committee here, so yeah. I know you were listening intently trying to figure out how to get that team up to speed this year. So what were some of your takeaways? Right. I shared the similar takeaways as Robbie and Rebecca. One of the things that I did notice also was they talked about culture, school culture, and helping students feel comfortable on campus, right? But it was such a small part of their conversations when in reality that's the biggest part of helping to everybody everybody to feel safe right if we have a few students that are not feeling safe on campus what are some of the strategies that other sites are doing to help us think outside of the box to really engage those students and help them to be more a part of the campus yeah, I agree. That was probably my biggest takeaway. And as you were saying, Robbie, that what was missing, and it reminded me, Don, of the work you and I did a while back in terms of social-emotional learning. The, the primary theme was that when students feel connected to an adult on campus, the campus is safer. Right. And when a, a student that feels treated with dignity, treated with respect, doesn't want to shoot their classmates. I mean, that's not a hard math to do. Right. Right. We've, we're talking about students in crisis, ultimately. No one's sitting around bored one day and says, you know what, I'll, I'll do this. There's something going on at home. They're not feeling connected at school, whatever it might be. So if we can uh, address those issues and break down some of those barriers, we're far more likely to prevent this than to have to respond to it. And, and to give people listening that <clears throat> may not be educators an, an understanding of what um, what you know the, the 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 whole idea that we're talking about America before 9/11 and America after 9/11 were two different and are two different Americas I mean very true and it isn't limited to just the airport you know there's a whole sense sense of security comfort connection that's different today than it was in 1990s or eight 1980s similarly pre-columbine post-columbine in the education world it's a demarcation line very very similar and and of course we've seen the increase in uh in in school shootings since then doesn't mean that they didn't happen before but certainly didn't happen with the regularity and what's happened over decades now for educators who have been teaching for decades is there is a post I don't and it sounds dramatic but I don't know what else you'd call it but PTSD I mean when when there and, and it depends on what else is going on in a teacher's life I think or a staff member's life but sometimes like if you're just kind of maxed out and then there's a, an event like Uvalde it's really, really hard to keep your feet under your your feet on the ground and underneath you when you're trying to address the needs of the kids who are also freaking out and and, and going through this again. Yeah, it's not unusual. You've got an extreme situation, so there's going to be an extreme response. I mean, 9/11 is a Correct. perfect example. We went, we, you know, the Patriot Act went well past our normal. Uh, comfort level in terms of our liberties like we gave right. up everything and said we just need to stop this and we're sort of in the same boat with school shootings it's an extreme situation it's terrifying for everybody and so we wanted to stop immediately so right. we're we lean into some extreme approaches sometimes and I think you both really touched on this is you don't really know what's happening in anybody's life at one given time. And so everybody's response to what's happening is going to be different based on trauma that they've had in their lives, right? So that trauma-informed care and really getting to know what you and what everyone else is bringing to the table is so truly important. Tracy, I'm so glad you brought up trauma-informed care because that is one of the critical, in the research, that's one of the critical pieces. And I, I don't want to, I mean, it's easy to tear something down rather than build it up. So I don't want to um, really be too harsh on the conference because we did get some great takeaways. Right. But there were a lot of missing elements. And we've talked about the school culture piece, prevention piece, and trauma-informed care. Because what this conference primarily focused on, it was hosted by largely law enforcement officials. Right. So they had a law enforcement approach. And there was even some questions from uh, some of the hosts about the value of prevention over response. Right. And their version of prevention was harden the target. 
right. versus identify the issues in the student. So, yeah, and that's, that's a good okay. point to make. That's yeah. what it was. I'm, I'm curious. Did they have a um, an area like at the convention center where they were selling things and? It was a convention, so yes. <laughs> yes. And and even one of the one of them Every was saying, time, "It's he's so mean." Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I, I keep coming back for more. Yeah. Um, so, but well, let me ask this because they were targeting gadgets sometimes in the in the convention center outside of the sessions. Oh, so now everyone's just going to kick me when I'm down. This is the thing. I saw an advertisement for a pull-out whiteboard that is a metal, yeah, ballistic. expandable, ballistic was whiteboard. Yeah. They, had it there. they had it there. Okay, so I'm just thinking, about, when I saw that a year or two ago, I thought to myself, what school site is going to spend the money for a 12 by 12 hardened ballistic Kevlar whiteboard to pack kids in and a 1 in 10 million opportunity or whatever or experience? Um, compared to the benefit of more counselors, more tutoring, more mentorship, more mm -hmm. after-school programs, more adults on campus to connect with kids. There's just so many other ways that money could be spent and, and be used, as opposed to, you know, 100 classrooms with something that does never get used. And when it finally does need to get used, there's so much stuff in front of it, you couldn't pull it out in the event that the emergency happened. Exactly. And one of the things that they brought up during the conference, one of the speakers discussed training and the critical part of training your staff to be prepared for this. Rob and I had some great conversations around how do you train for that, but also ensure that you have that, you're not freaking people out. Correct. And the piece of it is that people are responding in a way that's very different than what the training was because now they're responding to a crisis right after a very traumatic event. So they've just gone exactly. this through this traumatic event, and they're expected to remember all of the training that they've gone through. Right. So prepping people and really laying into that trauma and leaning into trauma and how to deal with trauma and traumatic situations rather than the looming traumatic situation that, you know, is one in a million, but that does happen. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? Right. Yeah, and to your point, Don, I, uh, you know, my light summer reading over the uh, this year was I read The Violence Project Had to Stop Mass Shoot the Mass Shooting Epidemic and Trigger Points Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings. And one of the interesting uh, stats I got out of this was that uh, the ACLU now estimates 1.7 million students are in schools uh, with police but no counselors. 6 million students are in schools with police but no school psychologists, and 10 million students are in schools with police but no social workers. And this is madness. That's staggering. Yeah. Houston, yeah. just yesterday, the Houston uh, uh, school district, which I think got taken over by the Texas government, turned 28 libraries into um, um, detention centers for kids that are unruly or acting up. So they're taking away places that are for learning and turning them into low security um, confinement areas. And, and that was one of the primary recommendations at this conference was um, more SROs. Armed SROs on campus were, was the solution. And one of the notes we talked about when we debriefed was, let's check the data because it wasn't being backed up by mm -hmm. data. So I went home and started looking at the data and there's no data right now that an armed SRO on a campus has made any school safer. It has only actually had a negative impact in certain, in certain schools, especially for students of color. Uh, and we also saw in Parkland that the, 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 um, the school safety officer was just acquitted of, of negligence because right. he, you know, and, and right. for, for as, as much as people have opinions about that, nobody is in that situation where you're hearing that gunfire and, and, and expected to run it when you're by yourself. And then we see Uvalde and you've got more than 250 armed people with bulletproof uh, um, tactical gear and no one's going into that building. Right. Until the one guy does because his, you know, perhaps because his wife and kid are in there. But it just is madness. Yeah. And the idea of arming, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll play my card on this. The idea of giving teachers weapons and concealed carry with the expectation that I'm supposed to walk around my classroom with a weapon or have it in a drawer or something and then potentially shoot a student. I mean, that's just not realistic for me. And I understand some teachers may feel it is for them, but 
it, it's the wrong path. It's just God. Right. I mean, and and the the hosts of this conference said the same thing. They were not advocating yeah. for arming teachers, which I was happy to hear because I know. You know, Texas has suggested that, mm-hmm. and some of the other states said this is the only way to solve this problem. And it, it was very much just focused on tactical response. Right. And the data doesn't support it, and our own gut doesn't support it. I mean, Rebecca? Oh, I was going to say that, and I don't know if you got a chance to look at this. Um, he said it was a U.S. problem, that this isn't something that happens in the mm-hmm. rest of, of the world. So my question is, why? Is it a U.S. problem? Yeah. yeah. And and I don't know. I haven't gotten an opportunity to to dive into that. But that's an interesting data point for us to really, as a society, correct, take a look at why this country, why our country, is having such significant crisis in our schools. And I think that what I heard when you guys were reviewing the conference, it seems so much like we're treating the symptom and not the cause. Yes, and, and 100%. That's exactly what it felt like. And I think sitting there as an educator for the past 20, however many years now, it, it felt wrong. We were It felt backwards. Like mm-hmm. at the end result, if it happens, this is what we need to do. But we should have all of this teaching and learning on what we should be doing to support our students and what we should be doing to support our communities and our families. Um, that piece felt like it was missing. And I understand that that's the lens law enforcement's looking through. And sure. we need law enforcement. And there's, But I think together we need to have a bigger conversation so both sides understand um, what what our needs are. Yeah. And Robbie, I know you had made some notes on one of the sessions that you attended that was talking about detention, but also talking about how to help change those behaviors. Yeah, that was the first session I got to go to by myself. So I got the, my favorite speaker came out of that section, session, excuse me. Uh, Amy Gross, who was a former counselor, had a counselor lens, and she took on the idea of prevention. So we heard the word prevention a lot in other sessions, but she actually talked about it in, in depth, right? And the quote that I walked away with is that she talked about the high value of low-level concern, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing it early on, understanding what to do when, and being able to help a student before it becomes too much. And this is the broken window uh, idea that New York went around with those people jumping in the subway and going against for the low-level misbehavior to reduce the other crimes. Right. Which is ironic because here in this community, we have very little police enforcement and there's a lot of low-level concerns that are being unaddressed, right? Right. That we're trying to raise flags on as a school that sees it, but we're not getting a lot of traction. And I think that this school also has done, and the district has done a great job with restorative justice, where it isn't just mm-hmm. punitive, but that there's some that, that there are conversations and some restorative, are you ready to come back to class? Are you ready to participate? Because they're kids and we're learning. And there are two things I wanted to also add. Tracy, you talked about the, the, the difficulty or stress that we induce by doing our safety drills and what have you. And we're looking at it from a high school protect, perspective, which definitely is stressful and can be triggering for kids and, and teachers. But I always think about the younger ones, right, and the, and the smaller kids in the K yeah. through uh, and how they've got to train, they've got to have procedures, and at the same time, how difficult that is for the parents of the kids that come home to talk about what they experienced. And the other thing I wanted to say was we I taught at a, con- a continuation school, 150, 160 kids on average, and the SRO that showed up after Columbine for us was a guy named Arnold who was phenomenal. But he wasn't phenomenal because he walked around with his shoulders back and his gun out. He was phenomenal because he just had incredible relationships with kids. And, in fact, while I was at the San Diego Loyals game, I'm going to give a shout-out to, do you like my... Go soccer. <laughs> so, at the San Diego Loyals game, there was a sheriff tent. Loyal, but okay. I'm a, I'm a rabid local fan. Locals. No, loyal. <laughs> it's singular. No, the fan base is called the Locals. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. My bad. Okay. What, did, was I right and you were wrong? God, you an I think you just upped him. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Fake fan. <laughs> <laughs> there was a sheriff uh, a tent and a former student was there who had been befriended by uh, Arnold and you know I mean basically he's now 20 years into his career and recruiting for the sheriffs but that was an impact of the SRO program yeah. 
Um, so, and, and I want to be clear, like, uh, I'm not suggesting we don't have SROs on campus because they can be very effective exactly. And I'm not saying. suggesting you did. I, I don't want that as a, as a placebo, right, right? not a placebo, but like it, it makes us like, it gives us a false sense of security. Correct. So lots of the gadgets we were talking about, they made a good point at the conference. Like these give you a false sense of security. It doesn't. It doesn't stop the prevention piece of being aware, the see something, say something. Just because you've got a metal detector or just because you've got an app that scrubs through everybody's social media to find warning signs doesn't mean you could go, whew, we're all safe, we're all good, it's not going to happen here. Uh, and because um, what was shocking, I guess not really shocking, we all know this, but it was to hear it articulated by these uh, retired officers, the lack of law enforcement we've got. Robbie, you referenced it a second ago. We see it in our own community. It's hard to be a police officer now. Yep. Yeah. Cameras are everywhere. They're under incredible stress. Everything they do is questioned by both sides. Mm -hmm. They're in a lose-lose scenario most of the time. And I can tell you in my 15 years in, uh, as an administrator and 25 in education, I've had incredible experiences with every officer I've worked with. Mm -hmm. yeah. They've been incredibly supportive. I'm going to give Sal Hurtado and Bob Briggs a shout-out right now. Sal helped us with a threat we had this year. He was phenomenal, and the first thing he said was, I want to be on your campus to come to a football game. Not to work, just really? to hang out with the yeah. kids and be at a football game. And I was so amazed. And, and Bob was so, uh, Officer Briggs, I should say, was so supportive and understanding and calm and they're just amazing professionals. And we need more, uh, for sure, in our community because if that's a great level of, of prevention when they can be out connecting with the kids and not in those punitive mm -hmm. uh, uh, roles. So I just I wanted to make sure it wasn't sounding mm -hmm. like we were... No, they've been wonderful to work yeah. with. And there's no substitute on campus when kids are feeling safe and connected and respected, and that comes singularly from relationship. It exactly. comes from listening to kids. It comes from showing you know high fives and glad you're here and using their name and knowing their name and remembering their name and 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 it's a thousand small ways of threads to build that uh fabric that creates the community that is you know your your school and if you don't have those threads being or it's thread barren or it's been torn to mend those things so that kids feel uh, connected again because there are so many hormones there's so many factors at home and, and there are so many different dynamics. You know, one of the things I remember as a teacher that I always found interesting was, one, driving to school as I got closer, watching the kids in the cars with the parents, some talking, some with headphones on, some yelling at each other, how they got out of the car, <laughs> slamming the door, kissing goodbye, whatever level, coming into the classroom. Are they throwing their, are they dropping their bag, setting their bag down? Overhand throw to the ground, bat. Oh, you seem upset today. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you I'm might really need upset. to follow up on that. <laughs> yeah. So, but there is lots of ways if you're paying attention. But if you've got 40 kids, or if you're in a gym class with 60 kids, it's hard to pay attention because you're just doing such crowd management. So, you know, fewer tactical ballistic Kevlar uh, whiteboards and reduce class size. Yeah, and another thing I, I appreciated from the conference, I'm sure, curious what you guys thought on this, was they shared a, a survey I had never heard of uh, from the CDC. The, it's uh, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And I can't wait to kind of dig into this because we have our own uh, California Healthy Kids Survey, which we started uh, digging into before uh, we welcomed teachers back. And um, I want to look at this one because it really pulled out some interesting things. We're talking about looking for early warning signs. Um, one of the things that has been in, uh, very common with uh, school shootings is school shooters advertise before an event. Mm -hmm. It's on social media. They talk to a friend. And that's where that vigilance comes in. That's one of the safest, the see something, hear something, say something, absolutely works. Every time we've had a threat, it's been reported to us by somebody else who saw it on social media. The one we had last year that was a hoax, because it was going around, uh, was brought to us by a parent. Right, yeah, that was, a uh, parent emailed me in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. uh, letting me know that her son brought it to her attention. And when you have a culture like that, and I get this question all the time, because we do not have fences on this campus. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Torrey Pines campus, it's very large, kind of similar to a, a community college layout. Uh, I do refer to it as the Winchester Mystery School. We just keep adding to it in weird ways, and it's all over the place, and things don't match. Uh, but I, I give tours every year, 
and I get that question, there's no fences, how do you keep the kids safe? And even these officers uh, said, those fences and all the data and the research in the two books I had just read said the same thing, that those fences keep people in rather than keep people out and make it much harder for uh, medical personnel, law enforcement to get on campus when there is a crisis. Mm -hmm. So those fences are another placebo. It feels like the right thing to do. The reason elementary schools have fences on them is you have little kids who could run away. Right, you have to keep them in. Right, you have mm -hmm. to keep, exactly. They're designed to keep people in. You want mm -hmm. to keep your, your kindergartner from going, ooh, look, ice cream truck, and running out uh, on the street. At a high school, that's just not as effective. Were there uh, anything else like that that kind of jumped out at you, some of the positives that we took away from the conference that you guys remember? Going back to the, the same speaker that had that counselor lens, she made a point to tell an audience, and an audience mostly full of males, I think, at that point in time, um, that it is not socially acceptable for males to ask for help the way it is for females to ask for help. Great point. And that stuck with me throughout that conversation. And then I brought it back to our team and I said, is there a way that we could change our dynamic? Because I believe that we see the same trend in the discipline scene that it's more males than females right now with the more aggressive behaviors. So how can we adapt what we do here at Torrey Pines to be more counseling focused? And how do we change our practice to be supportive, but also understand that there needs to be a consequence for your action, yep. right? There's, there's such a fine line between that. We wrestled with it last mm -hmm. year because we know the state is pushing away from suspensions. So we've taken that tool. And I was listening to another podcast on this subject yesterday, and they, uh, uh, this woman has a PhD and did her dissertation on this and talked to, and she was studying a school that had uh, taken away suspensions. And she said then they had nothing. And this is a, the exact mm -hmm. conversation we had we last had year. This, like, yeah. right. What do we do if you take the suspension away? What have we got? But suspensions can be a trigger for a student. They could be in a very difficult situation at home. Now we've sent them five days Correct. back into that situation, which can trigger. Uh, and so what she found is, and we've kind of done the same thing, we've uh, suspended without documenting the suspension. It's we talk to the parents and say, why don't they stay home for a couple of days, call them in sick so we can settle everything down and get them some help. But we, it's really ultimately this, the same uh, thing it's just not documented the same way it was uh, really eye-opening for me um, but that fine line that administrators face all the time with as you're saying Robbie the counseling piece or the punitive piece and we do have some old-school thinking in terms of you need to you know what is it uh, spare the rod spoil, uh, spoil the, the child, child right mm -hmm. and uh, that the only way a student is going to learn is through a, a punitive measure and I just don't believe that's true. <clears throat> well, what we know is if building prisons stopped bad behavior, we wouldn't continue to build more prisons. Well and said. What do we do when a student doesn't know a concept? Do we right. punish them or do we teach them? Right. So if they don't know how to behave, how do we continue to teach them not only what our expectations are, but give them the tools and the strategies for them to live up to our expectations? Well, right and develop their own exactly and i have you know i have a very long story that i won't do Don't you're get. kidding really <laughs> you go. Thank you, i'm going to send it to you in an email instead all staff is it on 15 other topics that aren't really related to this but eventually you'll try to bring it around not try not try but there was a time where i falsely accused a student and there is nothing worse than accusing a student of of something of cheating in this case, in front of his friends, in front of the class. <clears throat> and uh, the story is so good, I really want to tell it, but I won't. However, at the end of it, this guy was mad-dogging me across the campus. I apologized to him in person, in front of his friends, stopped the class, apologized. Um, and and then in the next day, I went back, and he was mad-dogging me again from the parking lot. I went up to him, and I said, have you... Has anyone ever forgiven you for anything? And he said, no. I said, have you ever forgiven anybody? He said, no. Do you even know what it is or what to do? He said, no. And I said, okay, well, this makes sense. Why, you know, why, you know, this intransigent place that we're at and me getting more mad at him or, you know, re reacting against him, it was an opportunity to really help him understand, you know, forgiveness is I forgo my desire to hurt you, even though I felt as though you hurt me, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to come to understand that you acted in ignorance. I mean, I, I don't know 
what else to say. And I also knew that his anger was from the hurt he felt because I, you know, he had worked so hard because it was me that he was turning the paper into. You know, the full oh, story is I accused, this is the thing, I accused him of cheating because this paper was so good, I didn't believe he did it. Oh. Then I go to break and Miss Anschute says, did Oscar turn his paper in? And I said, yeah. He goes, oh my God, he's been in my room for a month and a half working on that thing. I, I helped him, no. but I never helped him write it. I just helped him get it for, you know. That <laughs> had to be oh so hard. As she's telling me this, I just felt like mm -hmm. the lowest of the low. I still got to tell the story wrong. Well, I, we're, I we're human beings too. Was worth we're that story, right? Too. Because yeah. we make mistakes, and then when we own up to those mistakes, and students see that we own up to the mistakes, right. that helps them to own up to theirs. Correct. Yeah, is there a more important lesson for a student to learn than teachers are, are human, they make mm -hmm. mistakes, they're a professional and an authority figure, and to own it yep. with them so they can l learn that model behavior? Because as you said, Don, we don't know what's going on at home. The kid's never been uh, forgiven for anything, right. and that that relationship at home that he's missing, if he can get it here, is Correct. going to have a dramatic impact on the rest of their lives. Right. And he went on to be an auto mechanic, which is good. I mean, he was super good with cars. Thanks for going full circle well, on that for us. Thank you. Now, there's some information that wasn't necessarily... Part of the, it's part of the story. No, of course it's related. I'm, 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 see, I'm going to support you on this one. I'm not going to make fun of you for a change. Yeah. <laughs> I want to apologize in advance if you're hearing some construction noise. Apparently construction is following us uh, this year, Don. Actually, uh, I brought the bulldozer in the front yeah. with me. So I keep hearing this boop, boop, boop in the background, so I apologize for that. But we're putting in some solar panels here at Torrey Pines High School, so they're high efficiency up lines right now. Yeah. Another energy. thing that was really uh, surprising to me, because we hear this all the time, we've asked our, our staff to be vigilant. We ask all of us to be vigilant. We're asking our counselors to keep an eye out. But we still, this, this myth of the school shooter profile, mm -hmm. that there is a profile. There is right. not. No, Let's be not. very clear. There is no, like, well, the student's wearing all black and he's withdrawn and, and, and uh, he's super into video games. That's one of the huge myths. If you play a lot of Call of Duty, you're more likely to be a school shooter. Absolutely false. Uh, and that was a huge takeaway from me. Did you, guys, uh, did you guys take the same thing? I did, but I also felt like everyone kept saying the male shooter, the male shooter, the male shooter. Yeah. Right? So there's a bit of a profile lined in that, right? Yeah, based on gender at least. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and the data plays that out. Right. Um, although uh, the first, what's credited as the first school shooting in, in the country right. or in the modern era it was Brenda Spencer, right. uh, a girl here in San Diego of all, mm -hmm. of all places at an elementary school. Um, and, but that we get that from staff all the time. And I always have to kind of be respectful and say, I understand where you're coming from, but let's be careful about that. Because as a, an avowed goth myself, you know, in a goth <laughs> band in the eighties and nineties, as someone who wears a trench coat to the beach, I do not do that. Thank you very much. Oh, so that's what it feels like when uh, you make fun of each we make fun of each other in the podcast. I should stop doing. <laughs> it's gonna that. be a long season, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, I blue hair, black hair, lots of black clothes, and all that. And and there's that that image, you know, of well, this person's on edge. And it was, as we know, it was created by Columbine, the trench coat mafia, mm -hmm. and all these things, which they were not in. That's a myth. Um, the the myth that. Uh, Bullying leads to school shooting. There's no evidence of that, no direct causal relationship between bullying and school shooters. And I think those are all those things that kind of give us this false sense of security. Like, if I can make sure my kid doesn't wear those clothes and isn't being bullied, then I can end school shootings. And I really hope that through our podcast today, we can uh, get at what really has an impact um, and not get caught up in the media image of it. Because Doing, uh, supporting students, doing what's right for kids isn't just about preventing school shootings. Right. It may, but it's still the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. That still needs to happen at every campus. We still need to have school psychologists, more counselors, more student supports, because that social-emotional learning is going to, let's be cynical, it's going to help academics. If you want to improve your test scores, help the whole student. If you want to keep them more safe, help the whole student. 
if you want students to be happier and more successful in life, include the social-emotional learning in it so that they can be better people and learn how to interact and have positive connections with staff. And also free up the assistant principals from doing more behavioral issues to being able to do more student connection issues, right? Because the kids are less likely to misbehave when they have better relationships, have better self-management, understand what self-management is and have been practicing through uh, activities in classrooms. And see an, uh, an assistant principal, sorry, Rebecca, to jump out, I'll let Go you ahead. in here yeah. in a sec, but to see an assistant principal or a principal in a classroom just observing, As a saying, person. hey, nice work, and then leaving and right. not calling a kid out so that we can change this image of the role of you guys are here to just lay down the hammer and that's the only time a kid ever sees you, which fortunately, you know, we've worked really hard on that at Tory, and they don't see us because, you know, Tracy's over ASB, you're over athletics, so we're out at games, Robbie's, you know, out uh, working with students all the time. So those relationships are, are, are critical. But I'm sorry, Rebecca, what were you going to say? No, I was going to kind of continue on this, not just the relationships here at school, but also our partner relationship with our parents and our mm -hmm. families. Exactly. That piece is so critical. Um, part of the conference talked about social media. There was this piece on all of the crazy things kids do. I mean, he went through tons of weird, crazy challenges that <laughs> I wasn't aware of. I'm confident other parents aren't paying attention to, but just being vigilant and aware of what your own child is doing and kind of helping and supporting them make decisions on social media, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Because what I'm seeing, I have a 12 and a 14 year old, what I'm seeing other families do and what I'm hearing from my own children who aren't allowed to have social media right now is this is how they connect. They're able to do all of these things on it. And I'm, I'm wondering what we're doing as parents of this generation to help them learn how to use this tool because it's a very powerful tool and if we as the school and the and the parents and the community aren't helping to teach them how to use it it's problematic also it is running so fast we can't keep up as the adults they're yeah. like 10 steps ahead of us so how are we educating ourselves to make sure that we are then able to educate them mm -hmm. on the use yeah, and this will, if you're keeping score at home, this will be the first reference to Gene Twangy in the, on the podcast, which I do pretty much every, but I'm, I'm uh, pretty much every episode. But Gene for life. Yeah. Um, she's just such a good writer and so insightful and, you know, it's data driven, but also readable. It doesn't read like a dissertation. So this is one, once again, pick up Generation Stan. iGen and Generation Me. Um, but I'm, I'm digging into the Gen X chapter of Generations right now. And, and one of the, interesting things about Gen X is, uh, as Don and I are, we're very proud, uh, almost too much, of our, we were the pioneers of technology and all that, and we used to uh, lecture boomers on their inability to use email. And now we sit around and go, oh, I don't know how to make a TikTok. I don't know how you guys deal with that. Like, all of a sudden, we're the boomer. Um, but <laughs> it's just one more thing I'm not going to learn anymore. I've learned enough. Right. We, and she's saying very interesting that we're aging faster than other generations because we became grumpy old men way too fast. Mm -hmm. But That's how I feel. I want to be clear. You're making a great point, Rebecca, about uh, social media and what the parent's responsibility is because we've talked about it on this podcast before. You can't just hand uh, kids a phone and say, well, I hope you guys figure it out because I'm no good at technology. Uh, and... Being vigilant is, is part of this with parents. We cannot let our own bias against social media keep us from paying attention to what's going on. Because I used to, I remember, and this was before cell phones, in early in education, back in my day, um, <laughs> uh, teachers say we're very proud that they didn't have cable. And I don't even have a TV in my house. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, so... As an educator, you're going to avoid one of the most influential pieces of uh, or media tools that has ever existed, and you're going to be proud of that? What if somebody before the printing press said, I don't have books in my house? I use the spoken word. Like, we can't just, like, you know, be proud of not being into something and have it be such a huge influence. Um, was that a little too early? Going too far back in time? That we have five over here. <laughs> <laughs> Front row seats to the show because people didn't see the Hamlet ha hand gesture. Was that a skull? Uh, yes, I was. It was Alas, a poor Yorick. That was so, a visual I, Hamlet reference. Yes. Let me counter your point a little bit. It was right. some, I don't remember where the point came from. I, it just stuck with me that a person was describing raising children, right? And when I was younger, which is 
after you guys, which even when you were younger, right? Yeah. I get to be the youngest one in the group, right? Um, our outside of the home influences stayed outside of the home. Mm-hmm. The only influences from outside in were via a TV or mm-hmm. the long email that Don wrote or something of that nature, right? <laughs> but now that undue influence from the outside world into your home. 24-7. Uncontrolled. You have no yeah. censorship whatsoever on that unless you understand the technology, you know how to control it, which most people don't, right? And and put up guardrails like mm-hmm. the computers are used at the kitchen table, not in your room, right? Right. Because you're 12 years old, and when you're an adult, you can bring it to your room and have your own time, but right now... Yeah, so what are the, what are the controls that you can play in your own home to ensure that you instill the correct values and morals that you want within your family, right? And But creating that, just as we're trying to create on campus with teachers, we want our students, and we just did our Healthy Kids survey, 90% of our students feel that there's a trusted adult they can go to. Which so, is twice California standard number, I think. I think it's like 45 for the average school in California. Could you repeat that? I Again, I think that the average percentage for st- a student feeling connected to school at the state level is like 45%. And so thank you. I wanted you to repeat it because I'm so proud of this number. (laughs) Yes. This has been a focus for us for a very long time. But we want to create that in the house as well because I'm not expecting parents to know how to make TikToks. I don't know. I'm not going to. I'm not interested in it. Okay. Just not something I want to do. But I have to accept the fact that it's a powerful influence. So I want my kids to be able to, my kids, they're 23 and 20, but I want them to be able to come to me and say, this concerns me. I don't know what to do with this. This made me feel bad. How do I navigate this? I want kids to be able to go to a parent and share it. And sometimes that playful, I don't get those things. I don't understand how you use it becomes dismissive. And so then the kid feels like they can't go to the parent to figure this out, to navigate this. So where do they go? Another student. To someone friend. that understands it. Right. Mm-hmm. It may not be a student or a friend. It may be somebody on the internet that they don't know. Oh, great point, Robbie. Absolutely. Which relates to our episode last year, right. um, Share or Beware, that was one of the most eye-opening oh, conversations yes. I've ever had. Right. It's not that hard. Right. It's super easy to do. Well, this is also um, leads into, you know, what I'm thinking about is how does the school, you know, since this is an educational podcast, how do we help support that? Well, guess what? Our f- culinary arts program has a uh, one of the activities is the student creates a meal you know uh, plans the meal cooks the meal and the family sits down to eat the meal together there is there are a few substitutes for family meals every day dinner breakfast sit down together and it gets harder when kids are playing sports and there's band practice and we get that but at least a Sunday meal but there, there's time Without care, without the cameras, without phones and all the devices on the table, where you're looking at each other, because, you know, kids could be not eating. Kids, you know, there could be eating stuff going on. Uh, I read a quote a while back: uh, "Few people in America are neutral around food." What do you mean? Few people in America have a neutral relationship with food. Either, it's either a positive or a negative Yeah, either I, I'm right? eating too much of it, I can't eat it. You know, like the, it, the, the idea of just I'm eating for nourishment, it, it, it's become, you know, much like it, we were talking that this school shooting is a symptom of the, of the American culture. Our, our relationship with food equally off balance in, in, in a relationship to our culture. Yeah, you always kind of measure things by the amount of people that walk by the candy jar, right? Mm. Like the candy jar goes down, you know it's been a stressful week. Oh, there you go. Uh-huh. The more people that come in to grab that candy, <laughs> ooh, stress level is higher because it, of that relationship with food. In fact, who gave us the, the, the member of the jars that we got a little while ago, emergency stress relief, and I it was did. just full of chocolate? She did. You I did. did. That? I made those. Tracy gave us those. Yeah. But yeah. it's true. Like, you feel right, right. that stress. You're like, oh, I, my chocolate. body needs a piece of chocolate. I need to to um, give myself that reward. Right. So schools can encourage or, or, or uh, you know, like we also talked during the SEL stuff with the parents about, um, during the SEL conference, uh, committees that we had, about creating those uh, question jars, uh, table conversation right. cards yep. mm-hmm. uh, in relationship, great. specifically to the school. Um, that We also had uh, the, the quiz game around Tory Pines uh, facts and statistics, right? Um, but but that things that start conversations that then can lead to, to to the relationship, so that when someone is 
struggling when 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 things do change when you notice they're late to breakfast because they're sleeping in that you can start saying what's going on here and don one of the things you're talking about is is sort of that perfect world so if you've got that opportunity to go home and have those conversations and there are things that we can do around the dinner table and all that and then and unfortunately as we know you know better than we do even that that isn't always the case for students Um, and certainly in the rest of the country we happen to live in an affluent neighborhood so uh, we've got more of that here than they have in other areas, and so that's where. But even with the affluence, that they, they what what people are not affluent here with is time. Very because true. people Very true. are driving up to Orange County, driving up yeah. to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. They're, they're flying to Europe for business because they're in finance, correct? Et cetera, et cetera. Correct. Yeah. So right. there there are you know there's an access to excess in some ways here. But there's and the affluence definitely opens opportunity. But it, there's also a, a trade off with time. So yeah, and 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 I think like David Goggins or Jocko or any of these people that are also po- Jocko, if you want to join our podcast, we've got space at the table. Shout out <laughs> that start somewhere. If it's a once a month meal, if it's a once a week meal, like that, you start connecting at some level so that you can have a baseline and understand where are you at right now because you've got to start where you're at. You can't start anywhere else. And to bring it back to the educators you were saying before, so part of what we want to do today is, okay, so let's say then that isn't happening. You've mm-hmm. got the, the, the kid at home who, and we had one last year for sure, who was going home to a home life that had clearly impacted him and made it very difficult for him to function effectively at school. So then what are the supports we've got on campus to address the needs of those kids? Not just because we want to stop him from being a school shooter, but because it's the right thing to do. Because yeah. it's going to help him on a mm-hmm. whole series of levels uh, other than just try to stop this one thing. In other words, we don't want to get so myopic about stopping school shootings that we forget about all these other things. That's the last thing, right? right? That's right. the last issue. Because I'm, I'm, so I'm going to put this data out there. And we want, I want to talk about a couple other things, but I want to put the data out there that you have... Uh, the odds of dying in a plane crash are 1 in 11 million. The odds of dying in a school shooting are 1 in 10 million. The odds of being struck by lightning twice are 1 in 9 million. Wow. The odds of dying in a car accident, 1 in 103. Mm-hmm. And yet, yep. we run drills every year for this 1 in 10 million chance. Correct. We don't train people about plane crashes how to respond in a plane crash and we don't we've never run a drill on lightning you know so it's that extreme response Mm -hmm. to an extreme situation it feels like we need to focus on this but i do want to put it in context especially as it relates to drills because tracy you and i are going to work on drills this year we are they're mandated we're going to have to do it and the research is becoming more and more clear that since columbine now we've got 20 years of research of putting a five-year-old in a lockdown drill, in an active shooter drill, and uh, the trauma that can result in 18, not 18 years, but what is this, you know? 12 years. Um, yeah, 12 years of, uh, of these drills of a couple of years. Some schools do even more. And both the Sandy Hook Promise and Everytown USA, which are both school safety advocacy groups, are recommending against Lockdown active shooter drills. And there's no reason you can't have the teachers and the staff do the drill without the students, especially for younger kids. Maybe for high school kids, it's something that they could understand. But for five and six and seven-year-olds, you know, they're going to listen to the teacher anyways and, you know, get in the closet or get be in this room or what have you. It's the teacher that's directing the situation that needs to understand what to do. You know, the five-year-old's going to follow. And Tracy, what's been your experience with the safety committee on this very topic? Because I know there there are some heated... Uh, debates and opinions on this based on what feels like the right thing to do rather than a data-driven approach. Right. And with the safety committee, really, there are some very different approaches, right? And ideas about it. Some people feeling like we need to really train and drill hard and other people saying, you know, the, the part of the training is it's so situational, Right. You can't. And even during even during our convention that we went to and the sessions we listened to there, there was this talk of, okay, when we leave our classroom, we always run to the right. Well, Mm -hmm. what happens when you leave your classroom and that danger is to the right? 
exactly. right? It is being aware of your situations and the context of what happens when there's something on campus that isn't quite right. So that it's not necessarily this looming, scary school shooter type of thing, but if the, what happens on campus if there's an unsafe situation? Are we going to run towards that unsafe situation or are we going to be really aware of our surroundings and where we can go to get away from that unsafe situation? Um, I, I would add that the if they're a student shooter, they're in the classroom getting the same training and hearing the same responses of what we're going to do. So right. you know they already you know the element of surprise or what have you isn't there. I'll say for myself that a, a long time ago I saw the other thing is it's so defensive, right? In part because the those uh, SROs show up with a diamond formation and they're going now after Columbine you go eliminate the target so they're stepping over bodies or they're stepping over anybody that's asking for help in order to go to the, the source of the problem um, and in doing that all the kids are and the teachers are required to keep the kids in the rooms right um, which then of course you're in a defensive situation you're not running but I have always, my plan has always been to set up a maze with my tables to have the people that want to help have chairs to throw at the person that comes in the door. I mean, I had a multiple system that I was going to use uh, or hope to use because once it happens, who knows what really happens. But it wasn't just cower in the corner, right? Right. Um, at the same time, if everyone yells, hel runs helter-skelter across the campus, there's no way to actually address the threat that's ongoing, which is what happened with Columbine for you know almost an hour i think yeah and i i've wrestled with staff in the past on on this topic as well some of our, our teachers you know they, they read an article they see a documentary whatever it might be and saying why aren't we doing more training on this and, mm -hmm. and i need i need a specific script of how to react right and there is no script to react to chaos Correct. i cannot give you a script for that i need you to respond as a responsible adult professional who's in charge of children and react appropriately because if I give you a script now it's a false sense of security I, right. I know what to do I don't have to think every situation is different you're yeah. gonna have to think mm -hmm. and I think we also need to you know I feel very moved that there have been teachers who have given their lives yes. to protect their kids mm -hmm. yeah. there have been yeah. administrators who have stepped in front of bullets to protect their kids and that is not what any teacher signed up for but the relationship the teachers have to their job to their profession to their classrooms to their students it's something that they felt moved to do. And, uh, you know, that kind of courage is like battlefield courage. And I think as a country, we need to really look at how do we support soldiers in the battlefield compared to what we're doing for teachers. And that's not more Kevlar. That's more resources. That's more counselors. That's more mentors. Uh, I think about, you know, you kept saying, like, what, you know, what do we do? The thing that keeps coming to my mind that hasn't been said is Chanel Larry's mentorship program, which has been going five or six years now, mm -hmm. where teachers are individually paired with one or two kids. But there is a, a, a massive structure that there are check-ins, there are, you know, there's a list of things that, so teachers add this additional thing on their plate that they want to do, but they form these connections for kids that sometimes turn into incredibly strong connections, and sometimes they don't because the kid's just not ready or isn't interested. It's not 100% successful, but it's a really powerful tool that a campus can use to build connections with those outlier kids that may not have them in a classroom directly. And I don't, I, thank you for sharing that, Don, uh, about the teachers um, who have put themselves in the line of duty, because you're absolutely right. We did not sign up for this. We're not trained in uh, combat. That's right. In combat response. And this is not to say we shouldn't drill so that we can make a better decision in a, in a certain situation that there but that there is a way to approach it uh, and in a way that builds capacity in teachers without traumatizing them uh, helps students understand who the authority is in a classroom in a crisis and that is the teacher how to look to them without traumatizing them because my concern about um, specifically active shooter simulations in particular Correct. I, th I think are damaging and even some of our lockdown drills about oh, everybody hide in the corner I mean you and I grew up 
getting under our desks. Tornado drills. Uh, no, uh, oh, the, the nuclear, oh, nuclear, yeah. nuclear, yeah, yeah. Tracy oh. as well. You know that we were going to get under our desks because an atomic bomb was happening, and that really did freak me out. Absolutely, me of course it did. <laughs> so now imagine our students hiding in a corner, right. and they see it on the news all the time. I never saw an atomic weapon actually go off. Right, right, right. Right, right. you know. So, but our kids are seeing this, but it normalizes it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to normalize plane crashes. I don't want to normalize. Uh, double lightning strikes so when we normalize it saying well this could happen Mm -hmm. and so we're going to practice for it over and over and over again so that does it inspire more Mm -hmm. you know we you asked it earlier it's a there they said it at the conference this is a purely american not purely but largely american issue Mm -hmm. so is it a largely american issue because constant media coverage we then lose our minds on Facebook and start uh, talking about it, and we have to give our long speech about how upset we are about it, which keeps it in the culture and has inspired a response. There's a and two- then we practice for it on campus, and we've normalized and made this part of our culture. And Correct. there's a two-decade dis- two industry with Kevlar backpacks and yes. these yes. expandable safety safe rooms. and Yeah, the doomsday preppers who have jumped on it to get you know district funds. Right. And they're going to change the name of their country, a company and start change, uh, selling another product six months from now when there's some other new thing. Yeah. Um, so I, what I liked, and the, the final thing that I really liked that I pulled away from it was for years, uh, Don, you just sort of referenced it in your classroom, is for years we went with the run-hide-fight approach. Mm-hmm. And I think the, and we, we reworded it for mm-hmm. ourselves, but uh, we turned it into, they had a, a different order of the words, yeah, was, but we changed it to what was it? Uh, protect, deter, defend, prevent, prevent, prevent. Yes, yes. prevent. Sorry, thank what, you. Say it one more time. Prevent, deter, defend. So they, first stage is you're working on the prevention, right? What are we doing on campus to ensure that nobody's feeling so alienated that they want to do this type of thing? And that's and most if, of our work. Exactly. And then if for some reason something happens, we deter them from coming on, coming campus. on campus, right? Okay. And then if they do and you're in this situation, then you have, are defending. Or, right? delay. or running. Or right. delay, delay, slow, right? Slow delay, slow process. I like process. defend, delay, and attack. <laughs> well, the well you're former military, the point so. Right. I'm like, you might have some training in that. Yeah, that's your Air Force training yeah. right there. Yeah, that's a little different for you. Yeah. Best offense, best defense, a good offense. Yeah. I think your outcome would be different than Tracy's that scenario. <laughs> yeah. Right. And there was a point made that it's not to take down somebody, in, that intruder on the campus, but to, to defer, and fight to defer to get out. Mm-hmm. Right. So like using a fire extinguisher. Right. Or a chair, like you had mentioned earlier. Right, right, right. Yeah. But what I liked about it, because their order was delay, deter, prevent. And when we all met afterwards, we went, no, 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 no. Prevention yeah. is the number one key. Because right. even, even law enforcement kept reemphasizing your school culture. The connection between adults is what is going to make a difference. And all the data in those two books I referenced earlier, which I also recommend if you want to take a deep dive into this very difficult subject, um, uh, supports this idea of school culture, school connections, uh, a connection with an adult that they may not have at home. And every counselor knows this, and all of our teachers and coaches uh, know this as well, but I think sometimes we have to remind ourselves to be vigilant, be aware of what's going on with the student, read those signs, because that kid who, as you referenced earlier, Don, comes in, slams his backpack on the ground for some reason, that's a student we need to just stop by and say, how are you hey, doing? how you doing today? What's going on? What yeah. can I do to help? And I will also want to add, and you mentioned it, but for me in high school, my tennis coach was the mentor. He was the only person, and I had AP classes, and but the the connection I had to my school, the greatest connection, strongest connection, was my tennis coach. So the yeah. coaches just play an unbelievably important role for you know at our school, more than a thousand kids. Yeah, our coaches do amazing work on this and bring uh, students to us all the time who are struggling because mm-hmm. they see it in the performance. They see, I, I'll never forget when I was coaching soccer uh, years ago and there, one of my star players was just not playing well that day and he was, he was angry. He, was, he, was, he got a yellow card, so I, I pulled him off and he's screaming at me for pulling him off and all that. And so I kind of asked the other players, I go, guys, what's going on? He goes, he asked a girl at homecoming. She said no. 
Yep. I said, got it. Okay, thanks. And so I was able to pull him aside and connect with him and settle him down again, focused on the game and all that, because that hurt. Right. And he was not knowing how to deal with it, and it came out in, in aggressive ways. And I, I also think that in addition to that one-on-one crisis or, or, or um, you know, in those challenging moments, that's also the character development that happens and the teamwork and the connection. You know, there was an, we, we had a campaign on Tumblr about uh, We Are TP, or I can't remember the name of it, but the entire football team held up a sign like uh, the uh, TP strength it was is break, kind it of. Was, it was breaking down stereotypes. Yeah. You know, r- right. Like, but I remember I'm, one of the students said, I'm Asian and I'm not good at math. Right. You and know, I, like, and, it, and there was another kid that said, I play golf and it was an African American kid. Yes. <laughs> yes exactly. Yeah. But they, the whole football, the freshman football team had a sign. TP kindness is important or something along that line. Mm-hmm. And to think of ninth grade football players being the ones promoting kindness. Yeah. That's, you know, again, game changer. Absolutely. So speaking of that, we'll close the podcast with sort of a question for all of us here on, on campus. Like, we know building school culture is important for every part of the student, academically, social, emotionally, and then obviously hopefully to keep our schools safer. So what do you think is one thing you'll do differently or maybe even emphasize uh, this year to help improve our school culture? Does anyone want to jump in first? Sure, I'll, I'll go. Um, I'm lucky enough to work with our staff that are leading our Link Crew program, mm. which is um, solely for our ninth graders, incoming ninth graders, um, to help them feel um, comfortable and safe coming it gives two student leaders that are upperclassmen a small group of ninth graders and they are together for the whole year and um, this year we're so this is year two for us we're building in more um, activities and more functions for them to be able to connect because as a ninth grader coming onto this very large campus having that connection and learning our school culture from our upperclassmen right out of the gate we feel is so important. Game We're changer. really excited about it. Yeah. 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 It's going to be great this year. Tracy, what about you? Sure. Um, one of the things that I was really thinking through is, is continuing with those lessons on teaching students, not just what our expectations are, but how to meet them and providing tools for them on how to meet them. And then another thing that came up to me was we have a lot of high flyers, right? It's the high flyers that we're connecting with, we're, we're disciplining, we're also making those positive connections with them. But we also have a small group of students that don't really stand out and they could easily slip between, be, fall between the cracks, yeah, right? Yeah. So having conversations with teachers and really finding out, are there any kids in your class that are really necessarily might not have a connection to somebody on campus right they're not those ones that we're constantly talking to to give that attention because it's negative attention right or we're positive positive the positive attention that we're giving them but how are we interacting with some of those kids that might not be getting any of the attention are we identifying them and trying to make those connections robert what are you thinking about I walked away from that conference with two things that really stuck to me. I shared one earlier, and it was the high value of, of low-level concerns, but two was the breaking down of silos, right? We've heard that for generations of educators, break down that silo. So how will I lead that breakdown my way, right? And I think it's through the low-level concerns uh, when I'm interacting with discipline like Tracy's talking about. Um, how do I bridge the gap between a student being punitively punished and being supported and developing a new pathway toward the counseling office so a student can be further supported and understanding how to deal with what they need to deal with, right? That, that's where I see the biggest deficit amongst our students is they don't understand that they don't know how to deal with stuff and they might need some guidance. And I'm not that person sometimes, but they need to find somebody. And so for me, it, my change is gonna be helping them find that person. I think that's a great point, Robbie, because they, this, you know, Gen Z, uh, is has grown up with social media exposed right and they uh, social media makes you feel good at things you're not necessarily good at because of likes and all that sort of so it gives you an oversense of confidence and, and I think your points really uh, valid here about 
they don't know how to handle this, but they don't know that they don't know how to handle it because right. they've been fed all of these likes and support. You're absolutely right. You know, and they've said something completely crazy, but 15 people said they were right. So they go, okay, and they don't have that right filter. And that's our job as adults is to, to work that out. So I think that's a great point. Um, for me, I think it's going to be, we talked about it earlier, earlier, is getting out into classrooms for all of us. We've all struggled with it. Tracy, you and I talked about this yesterday, about our walkthroughs, and they're so important to do, but mm -hmm. we get a crisis, we've got evals to do, we've got uh, IEPs to be in, we've got meetings that are, have pulled us off site, but getting all four of us into a classroom to just see a cool lesson, see what the students are doing, pat them on the back, say, nice job, and walk out so that we're true instructional leaders and partners with them rather than the only time they see you is if, you know, one of our campus supervisors has come by and pulled them out of class mm -hmm. to go see you guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want us to really be out there in those classrooms this year making those random daily connections that uh, have nothing, there may just be perception. We may not talk to a student, but that student's gonna see us in a positive light in the back of the room that we've never noticed before. So I think that's really gonna be my focus this year. Well, I want to thank you all for coming in and talking about this very difficult topic and for taking time away from your families to go to that conference this year and have to dive into something that I know weighs on us all heavily, but I know our staff appreciates us taking this seriously because we all want to keep our kids and each other safe. Super job. I really, what, the thing I'm hearing and I want to just reflect back and recognize, you're talking about creating systems. And the systems are the thing that carry the school, that are uh, that all the staff that are not the four administrators, the, the hundred people, they come to rely on it. So you just have such a huge, important presence and, and, and impact on the campus, and uh, you dedicate a lot of time. I, mean, I don't think anybody listening has any idea how many freshman volleyball games and additional things you do to. Uh, keep this campus safe and also keep it a great place to be. Appreciate that, Don. Yeah, Thanks, Don. Thanks, Don. Thanks. Thanks for having us. That's all for today's episode. If you found our conversation thought-provoking and want to know more, you can find resources and guest photos on Instagram at Best for Kids Podcast. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email us at bestforkidspodcast at gmail.com. And to help us keep this conversation going, please rate and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. But more importantly, we hope you stay curious and keep asking, what's, what's best, best for kids? kids?